Where's Obadiah? <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's great uh, it's great to have that. Uh, this is one of the minor prophets, uh, but there's a lot uh, to say about it. I think I think it's got a lot of resonance with uh, a lot of life uh, at the moment. So uh, let's pray together as we open God's word. Father God, we pray that uh, as we study your word together, Lord, as we we meditate uh, on your message to us this morning. Father, that you would guide us uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit onto those paths in life where you would wish us to be, and you would pour out your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape, says the Lord to the people of Edom. Now, crossroads are dangerous places. I don't know about you, but every time I drive up to a crossroads in life, I've got it clear in my head. I know where I'm going. I'm taking that particular turn off from the crossroads. But the closer I get to the crossroads, the more I start to panic. Is it really that one? What if I go in the other way uh, or something? Uh, and they seem, to, they seem to do something to us, that, uh, and it's because it forces us to make uh, a choice. And if you get the choice wrong at a crossroads, then suddenly you can end up heading in a direction that you hadn't intended to go on and that you would never have wished to be on. But I think the reference to the crossroads from Obadiah this morning reminds us that there are certain decisions that we take, there are certain things that we do when we are at big crossroads moments in life and they can have really disastrous consequences. I don't know about you, but as I have been reading these prophets over the last uh, number of weeks, one of the things that has really struck me is just how much God longs for every one of us, every single human being on this earth across all of the centuries to return to Him, to turn back from the path that has marked disaster that sometimes we end up finding ourselves on. The constant pleas that we have read about, turn back from your ways, turn back to God, turn back from the path marked disaster. Yes, we've read a lot about judgment over these last weeks together. And yes, we have read a lot about disaster that awaits those on the wrong path. But we have read so much more about love. We've read so much more about a love that yearns for us to abandon the path that leads to anguish and to choose instead a path which involves trusting God. We've read so much about a path, about a love that yearns for us to abandon this road marked danger and to choose instead the road that is marked security. We have read about a love that cries out to us to abandon the path that leads to destruction and to choose instead the path that leads to salvation. You see, there is a moment in every single one of our lives and in the life of every single person on this earth there is a moment that brings us to a crossroads. And we must choose what path we are on when we get to that 
crossroads. But please know this, God is not in the business of bribing us. He's not in the business of coercing us. He's not in the business of forcing us to take a certain path. He gives us the freedom to choose which path we are on. But he does. In his word, Old and New Testament, he makes it abundantly clear to us that our choices are not free of consequence. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says this to his people. Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. God is saying to us that if we want to have a life that is marked by joy and freedom and blessing, then we must turn to him for those things. We must choose him. And there can't be any ambiguity about this. There can't be any hedging our bets as to what path we are on. It's got to be about committing fully to him, to obeying his commands, to loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, that all might sound easy enough, but one of the things that we need to be hyper alert to in the society that we live in, particularly, is that there will be certain forces out there, sin, the world, the devil, that will try to tempt us away from that path of total surrender to God. And one of those forces will be pride. Because pride is the thing that says to us, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't need to follow all these laws. I'm going to construct my own security. I'm going to build my own life, and from that, I'll get my own happiness. I'm going to center my life around me. And the sneaky thing about pride is that it tries to convince us that if we do that, that somehow there will be more security, there will be more power, there will be more authority, there will be more autonomy, that great word loved uh, by our culture at the moment, in doing all of that than there could ever be through following the path of submission to God. Now, the Bible says this is really dangerous for us, that much is clear. But it also says to us, we've got to be really, really careful because we can easily slip in to doing life that way and to thinking that that is the way that will lead to fulfillment in life. Now, that is particularly challenging in the context in which we live, never mind the days of Edom. We live today in this society of hyper-individualism, where our very identities, our very sense of who we are, 
are bound up in the idea of pride. Self, selfhood, selfie, and all of this infects every single aspect of our culture. We don't need other countries. We don't need refugees in our town. We don't need to get involved in other countries thousands of miles away where there is suffering because it is nothing to do with us. Pride says we don't need anyone else. We don't intend to interfere in anything else. We'll just look after ourselves and all will be well. It says to us, that's where your confidence comes from. Build your life around you and your sense of who you are, your sense of worth will come from all of that. But here's the danger in all of that. It's saying we don't need anyone else, but by extension and implicitly, it's also saying we don't need God either. If life is all about self, then pride is that force that tries to tempt us into thinking we don't really need God. We don't really need to obey His commands. We don't really need to do what He tells us. We can pick and choose what might suit us. If you're the Son of God, jump off the highest point in the temple, the devil says to Jesus. For the Scriptures say He will order His angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands. Now, Jesus could have turned around and said, I am the Son of God, and let me prove it to you. But that would have been pride. Instead, Jesus doesn't get sucked in to all of that. Jesus simply says, the Scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Now, Obadiah's message from God is unambiguous. It says that this kingdom of Edom is going to be destroyed and destroyed completely, and it's going to be destroyed because it has been built on pride. Edom's biblical history begins way back in Genesis 25, when Isaac and Rebekah become parents of twin boys, Esau and Jacob. We all know, uh, those of us who have brothers, that brothers can be fiercely competitive. But these two are competitive on another scale altogether. From the very womb, we are told these two are in competition with each other. And the tension continues through their entire lives. And as a result of this conflict between them, the twin brothers will part ways, and the descendants of Jacob will become the nation of Israel, and the descendants of Esau will become Edom, and the strife between the two boys will translate into a strife between these two nations. In the book of Obadiah, we read that Edom has been arrogant. It has been gloating over Israel's misfortunes, and when the enemy armies attack Israel and the Israelites ask for help, the Edomites refuse and choose to fight against them, not for them. And we're told very clearly that pride is at the heart of their attitude. God says to them, you have been deceived by your own pride. I think that's such an important line, how pride can deceive us so easily. Why does it deceive the Edomites? Because you live in a fort, in a rock fortress. You make your home high in the mountains. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. 
You should not have spoken arrogantly in that time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You shouldn't have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. Abuse, destruction, they come from pride. Why? Because they come from this belief that in this case the Edomites, but in so many other cases in life, that we begin to think that we aren't accountable to anyone other than ourselves. It's the same attitude that lies at the heart of so much abuse and violence that we hear and read about, of so much evil. Look at Ukraine. What is at the heart of the destruction, the bombing, the misery, the slaughter that we see in that nation at the moment? At its very heart is pride. At its very heart uh, is someone with complete disregard for international law, for the sanctity of life, uh, and who's going about on this campaign of invasion and torture and slaughter in order to empire build. The danger with pride on bigger small scales is that it leads to excesses of self-determination. And from that, it leads to abuses of strength. And so God will intervene. And his judgment will ensure that the pride that turns into abuse will not be allowed to triumph. And God intervenes in a concept that is called judgment. Now, I know we don't like talking much about judgment. Uh, it's one of those words that we can really struggle with, I think. Uh, and I think contemporary society absolutely does not like that um, notion of judgment. I totally get uh, all of that. And I totally appreciate that what we read about in these books uh, about judgment can be really, really unsettling to read. But I want us this morning to think about it slightly differently. If there is no judgment, what hope is there for the child who has been bullied or abused. If there is no judgment, what hope is there for people who have been slandered or abused or robbed or had their dignity stolen? If there is no judgment, what hope is there that victims of violence and oppression will in the end, in God's timing, see justice? I think we need to understand that in judgment, there is ultimately hope. But in judgment, there is also love. Listen again. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You shouldn't have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. God intervenes here in judgment because he loves everything that he has made. And he cannot bear to see evil ruining the lives of people. So in judgment, there is hope of redress. In judgment, there is also love. I want to say to you that if you have ever been the victim of some form of abuse, then be assured that the book of Obadiah tells us very clearly that God has seen it and that judgment 
or accountability will come. There will be a day of justice for all those who've been abused in any way. There will be a day of justice for all those who have had their dignity stolen from them in any way. And yes, there will be a day of justice for Ukraine and all the other nations that have been destroyed by tyrants. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you, says the Lord to the Edomites. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads, just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. The Bible is clear, absolutely clear, from beginning to end, that God will judge and he will punish evil because evil is at the root of so much suffering, and God cannot bear to see his people suffer. There's a danger nonetheless that uh, for those of us who are followers of Christ, uh, that we can fall into the trap uh, of a sort of spiritual pride as well, uh, of sort of saying, you know, that all is, all is well with us, uh, everything is fine, uh, and we'll hand all those people over to the Lord for judgment. That isn't the right call either. Uh, our call uh, as the people of Christ is to pray for those who persecute us, to pray for those who do evil, because we've read what the destruction and the consequence of it is in the Bible, and we should not wish that for anyone because it's only through the grace of Jesus Christ and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are here today and that we can live our lives in confidence that we will not go through that judgment. I'm very interested in what Obadiah says about the nations of the world, nations being made up of people, uh, that they will swallow the punishment that is poured out on them. It's this kind of liquid imagery that goes on there. I'm interested in that because we've read throughout the Old Testament over these last weeks, this metaphor of God's cup standing for God's judgment and God's wrath. It's exactly the same in the New Testament. But as people of the New Testament and followers of Christ, there is one additional element that we need to take into account, and it is this. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and he was on his own there in this very difficult moment where he was contemplating what he was about to do, the most agonizing death that anyone could ever imagine. And as he was there, you might say that he was at his own crossroads that night. He had a decision to make that night, and he chose the path of love. Kneeling down and praying to his father, he said, Lord, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. You see, when Jesus prays about this cup of suffering, he's alluding to the image of the cup that we have read about so much in the Old Testament that stands for God's judgment and God's wrath. But by going to the cross, Jesus is saying, I will drink that cup of God's judgment. I will drink that cup of God's wrath. 
all the way to the bottom. Not for my sake, but for yours. Not for a punishment for my sin, but as an atonement for yours. This is the greatest act of substitution that the world has ever known. It is the most consequential act of justice that the world has ever known and ever will know. That Christ himself would bear divine judgment, that judgment that falls on all of us, that he would bear it for us, and in the process he would suffer horribly for us, both physically and especially spiritually, as he was separated from his Father. So may we never forget that cost. May we never become complacent about just how much it cost to buy us our freedom. May we never become complacent about the fact that we look through life and we look even into the valley of the shadow of death itself and we say, that is not the end of my life. I will emerge from the valley and I will emerge victorious into the kingdom of God that lives forever and ever and all because of what Christ did for me. And because of that, I can face up to anything in life. Never, ever, ever let us be people who take it for granted. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he reminds us of this. You, we, me, all of us, we were once God's enemies, separated from him by our evil thoughts and actions. And yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And amazingly, you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. And none of us deserve it. It's pure grace. Paul goes on to say this, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. What is one of the things that can make us drift away from the assurance that we received, from the gift of faith that we received when we first put our trust in Christ? It is pride. It's pride when we start saying, I can do things my own way. This Christian walk of life, it's a bit tricky. It's a bit difficult. Might be better making up my own rules and doing my own thing. The Lord reminds us, don't do that. Don't do that. I know life isn't always easy. I know the path of life isn't always easy. But your destination is secure if you stay on my path. Your destination is one that has marked hope. It's one that's marked joy. It's one that's marked everlasting life. It's one that's marked life in all its fullness. You stray from that, it's a completely different path altogether. This morning we come to this table. We come to this table not as some ritual that we do every month in this place. We do not just, it's not just something that we do as part of our gathering together. It is the central act of our worship. It is a profound moment when we meet with the risen Christ and when we pour out our praise to him for all that he has done for us. It's a moment when we declare once again that we choose life with Christ. When you come to this table today and you receive the bread and you receive the wine, declare to yourself, I am choosing once again a life with Christ. 
And that means I am turning from a path of self, and I am following the only path to true freedom, a path that leads beyond the tomb, right to the other side of the tomb, where all evil is overcome, a path that leads to a place where those who have been abused will be restored, a path that leads to a place where those who have been victims of violence and oppression will be rescued, a path that leads to a place where, yes, we don't deserve to be, except that God loves us so much that He paid the cost so that we might be with Him forever. It is a gift beyond words. It is a gift we must accept or not accept. There is a choice with every gift. But that choice that we make is the key to our lives. So God says to us this morning, choose the path of life. It doesn't matter if it's the first time. Hallelujah if it is. But if we're people who've drifted and we all drift from time to time, then get back onto the path of life. The Lord, and part of his grace and his mercy is that he gives us opportunities to do that. Come back onto the path of life. Declare that Christ is sovereign over your life as you come to receive his gift today. Choose that path either for the first time or resolve to come back if you've drifted away. And know from Scripture, from Obadiah, from all the prophets, from the Old and the New Testament, know that Christ longs to meet you there. That's why he went to the cross for you. That is his whole purpose for you. He longs to meet you on that path. He died and rose again so that he could meet you there on that path. Your choice is the key to your life. But Christ knows what path that he wants you to be on. So as we finish this morning, let's listen again to those words from Deuteronomy where God says to his people then, as he says to his people in this room today, today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we, we confess and acknowledge before you that when we read some of these stories in the Old Testament, Lord, of people who choose the path of pride and destruction and carnage, Lord. It can be completely overwhelming uh, to read all of this. And Father, we do confess that sometimes uh, when we hear about judgment uh, uh, and these concepts, that Lord, that can be overwhelming as well. But Lord, today we turn to you and we fix our eyes on Christ uh, on that cross for us. And we say that actually that great gift of freedom and atonement that was purchased in our place is the most overwhelming thing for us to take in of all. And Lord, today we want to say that we receive that gift with open hands and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for it. We know that we are not worthy, but we know, Lord, that it is a sign and a symbol of your grace and your love for us that we can come to this table today knowing that we are holy and faultless in your sight. What an amazing miracle uh, it is. Lord, we pray that we would be those who would continue to live our lives in the knowledge of that, 
Lord, that we are on this path, uh, a path that has marked everlasting life. And whatever comes along between now and then, Lord, that you would help us by the power of your Spirit never to drift from that into different paths that lead in another direction. And Father God, I want to pray for anyone here this morning who has perhaps not taken that step before, just feels that they're at a bit of a crossroads moment. Lord, we know that you're urging them by that gentle power of your Spirit to choose the path marked life. Father, I pray that they would know your presence with them now and that they would know your arms are open and your embrace is wide, that they would walk into your arms and that there would be no transformation, that their destiny is secure and that they can live life in joy, in faith and in confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen.